The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guests today are Neil Allen and Annie Lamont, and our topic is Neil's new book, Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic, for which Annie, who is married to Neil, wrote the foreword. So Neil's been on the show before, and we're going to take a deep dive into the book, but not just yet. Their connection to the magazine is in the current issue. His essay, Enjoy Being Ordinary, is really an excerpt from the current book. And Annie has an interview with Steve Kiesling in the current issue that's subtitled A Masterclass in Writing, which it really is. And it's entitled A Time to Write a Masterclass with Annie Lamont. And Annie has a new book coming out in April called Somehow, Thoughts on Love. But I want to start a conversation with a thank you to Annie and your book, Annie, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life, which has been out for over a quarter century. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I rarely get the opportunity to thank my heroes, my teachers in person. So this is probably more for me than for you. But I published my first book in 1993, a year before Bird by Bird came out. And I didn't know what it meant to write or to be a writer. And I didn't even have a, I I got a glimpse of what it meant, an inkling of what it meant when I read your book. And then 36 books later, I have to admit, I still don't know. And I regularly reread Bird by Bird. It's, It's right here next to my, I have these typewriters that I collect. And it's right there with the typewriters that I can turn to it and just glance at parts of it and reread your, your advice and just your insights and go, oh yeah, that's, that's why I do this, and, and you're, you're just my hero. So I want to thank you for that powerful book, and I want to encourage anyone who's listening to the podcast who has a yearning to be a writer, go get a copy of this book, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. Even if you've been writing for a long time, if you haven't read this book, read this book. Or like me, if you've read it, read it again, and then read it again. And now I want to give a warning to anyone who's a writer. In Annie, in your masterclass in Spirituality and Health magazine, you urge writers to carry pencils and note cards or a notebook in their back pocket. I don't know how many people have back pockets anymore, but anyway, I do that. Uh, and, And so here's the warning. I used to carry pencils. I love pencils. I love sharpened pencils. And I used to carry them in my back pocket with the point pointing out. 
And one day I went to grab the pencil and the sharp point went deep into the palm of my left hand. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't make that sound exactly. It was a little a little more panicky than that. But it went deep into the palm of my left hand. The graphite, they couldn't get it all out. And I have this dark stain in my palm. I don't mind it. To me, it's stigmata. <laughs> it's, like, it's the stigmata of a writer. And it reminds me of what I'm willing to pay, you know, to, to be a writer. And it also reminds me that, it, and this is the warning to, to anyone who's, to, who's doing this, if you're going to carry pencils, don't carry them with the point down. You'll break the point. But you can buy these point guards for your pencils so that when you reach for them, you won't have them jamming into your hand and you know, sending you to the emergency ward. So, Annie, thanks for that book. So, Neil, I owe you a debt of gratitude as well. At the end of Better Days, you include a reading group guide, and it reads almost like a podcast interview. <laughs> so, you know, you ask the questions that I guess most people would ask you about the book, and then you answer the questions. So I looked at this, and I said, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask those questions. I want to take the gift of uh, your putting that reader group guide at the end, Neil, and I, and I want to take advantage of that to ask the two of you some, I don't know, maybe oddball questions or off the wall questions. And I want to start with a series of questions, sort of on spiritual autobiography. Your spiritual autobiography. And we're going to start this way. I'm going to start with you, Neil, if it's okay. On your website, you mentioned some teachers that are just phenomenal teachers, people I know. Eckhart Tolle, or Tolle, how do you pronounce it? Tolle, I think. Yeah. Tolle. So Adya Shanti and Hamid Ali, who's actually been on this show. And these are amazing people. And I'm just curious, because as I was reading about your spiritual journey, you learn from these people, but you don't define yourselves by these people. I mean, there are people who say, this is my guru. Adya Shanti is my guru. Uh, Toll is my guru. I'm part of the uh, diamond way of Hamid Ali. But that's not, that's not what you do. So tell us where you are how, if, if there is a definition of your spiritual journey or where you are at the moment with all of this. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way in. And it's interesting. We're, we're um, talking to you from Hawaii where Annie and I just spent a week in a lovely Ramdas retreat. And Ramdas retreats are essentially Vedic or Hindu in their worship. The portion that's worship is primarily a couple of hours of kirtan chanting in the evening. And we love the kirtan chanting. And kirtan chanting is a, a bhakti pra practice. And, and bhakti meaning a devotional practice, an ancient de devotional practice in which you're invoking gods. And you're expressing your love for the god and thankfulness for the god entering the room. And, and it's interesting because it's Hindu, it, it, it's, a lot of it has uh, warfare metaphors and analogies. And so you're actually 
mostly praising them for their victory in the war with the battle with the ego or whatever the war is with that you're personally in. And it's a bunch of devotional people around me and bhakti-oriented people, and I, I don't have a bhakti bone in my body. I just... <laughs> I just do not have a way of being devotional to a system or a person. And it's just me, and I'm stuck with it, or I benefit from it. I have no idea. So it's odd for me to join a group. And whenever I join a group, I'm more like, I don't know if your listeners have ever read J. Krishnamurti, but... I have an, a, a, a suspicion of any group, and I have a suspicion of being drawn into a particular belief system and being stuck in there because, to me, every institution has its repressive side. The, the, you know, whenever you identify yourself with something, you're separating yourself from a lot of other people, and in, in that identification, of getting a tribe, now everybody else is out of the tribe. There are boundaries to the tribe, and there are a lot of rules and restrictions. And they can be dietary rules, or they can be thought rules. You're supposed to think a certain way. And I'm just averse to that. So it's odd for me to join, but I've learned that in order to benefit from spiritual practices, you do have to join, and you do have to spend time within the closed system of that spiritual practice. And then as soon as the restrictions seem to outweigh what I'm learning and the benefit of what, what I'm learning, I get that I get out. And the way I explain it to myself in the long run is that knowledge is practical and knowledge you collect it and you store it in memory for later use, practical use. Wisdom, to me, has to be shed to make room for new wisdom. And if I stick around too long with a teacher, I get crusty, and I, and I start to believe the system rather than be open to all the different possibilities that are out there. And maybe I'm a flibberty gibbet, but it works for me. So when you're doing kirtan practice, yeah. uh, can you describe what's going on in you when that happens? Yeah, yeah it's, it's just so exciting to me. So a couple of things. The first thing is whether it's kirtan or a choir, a church choir, or gospel singing, or singing around the campfire with friends, or just singing along with pop songs on the radio. For me music, either consciously listening or singing along, is the easiest way into what people call presence. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that uh, music has uh, notes within a time signature. And those notes, when you're in a note, you can't get out of that note. You can't be impatient and jump to the next note until that note is over. And so you're forced into presence, one note, and then the next note, and then the next note. And sometimes there are kind of pauses between notes, and those are samadhi to me. And then the next note, and then the next note. 
and it's perfect presence. It's just the easiest way to be here now, as Ramdas would have said. Kirtan adds to that kind of generic presence that comes with music and with singing and with participating with other people. It's a it's a call and response form of music. So the so the lead singer sings a chant to a particular god, and then that might go, you know, J Rama J. It can be very simple. It can be two words over and over again. J Rama J Rama J Rama Jam. J Rama J Rama J Rama Ram. Right or something like that. And then you sing the exact same words with the same melody, very simple, childlike often melodies. And you just go, keep doing that and keep doing that. And so all of a sudden you're in a chorus instead of in your own voice, right? And you get kind of lost in the chorus and lost in listening to the, to the leader and the world disappears. And generally speaking, when it works, and it often works, for me, actually that particular God enters the room. And I really notice it at the end of the chant. There's silence at the end of the chant. And a good kirtan leader lets the silence go, right? You don't clap in kirtan. You don't applaud the performance, in part because there's this beautiful silence and even though I'm not Hindu and, and these gods aren't my gods, it's still, if I've been singing about Shiva, Shiva enters the room. And it, it feels energetically like this, the characteristics of Shiva are here in the room. And it's partly imagination, I'm sure, on my part. But there is a shared, lovely, unbounded truth that has a has a feel to me has a subtle feel to me that that shows up and i kind of when i go to kirtan you know you don't want to have goals and you don't want to you have set expectations but i do have a slight amount of anticipation of ooh i you know shiva's going to enter the room or ooh ram's going to enter the room or krishna's going to enter the room and it's it's just joy and yearning and love and truth all together. So, I mean, I've I've done a lot of spent a lot of time in, in kirtan. One of the things that that you know you, you talked about the leader, but it is call and response. So after a while, who's the leader and and who's responding? I mean, it's just the same thing. So it seems to me there is no leader, but you're, you're invoking the because I don't believe in gods, but yep. I believe in qualities, right? Yeah. So that, and that's what you're talking about. So you're invoking, you know, maybe you're, you're doing Om Namah Shivaya or, or Hari Ram or, you know, there's so many different texts or, or mantra that you can be using. You are invoking these, the qualities that are associated with these beings that become anthropomorphized. And then you enter into them. That I mean, Kirtan, in a sense, I guess, leads to bhakti, leads to devotion. But in a deep bhakti, at least as I was taught, you and then everyone in the room and then everyone in the universe takes on those qualities. Yep. So the god or the goddess is the person next to you. Is that? Do you experience that? Is that part of your... I'm not sure I experience that exactly as you've described it, but I do experience a collective joy. And there's yeah. this, 
very long. Oh, it, it's usually about four or five minutes, up to ten minutes, depending on how how slowly people sing it. Prayer that is kind of the 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 heart of the Ramdas community called the Hanuman Chalisa, and Hanuman is the monkey god who protects the great god Ram from danger. And Hanuman's very both friendly and fierce. And but this Hanuman Chalisa is a is a kind of a summing up of all the different parts of a spiritual adventure. You know, the part of yearning, the part of play, the part of warfare, the part of victory, and and it's a it's 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 a friendly prayer, a really friendly prayer, and a room full of people singing this very long, memorized, friendly prayer with friendly music accompanying them is like nothing else in the world because the, everybody in the room, in a way, is transported to the same spontaneous, innocent wonder at looking at all the varieties of human experience. And that kind of, people talk a lot about collective consciousness, I never know what that means. But I do know what it means to have a collective innocence. You want to tell us about what you mean by collective innocence? The ability to notice that at heart, our, 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 our first, our default love, our personal love for the world and for each other is the love of a three-year-old. It's goofy and innocent and spontaneous and silly often and frustrated sometimes and it's childlike without being childish and when i'm in a room with people who are that vulnerable that they can be childlike without being childish i'm i don't want to be anywhere else ever do you think and then i'm going to come to you annie but do you think it or can you connect it because i'm connecting it in my head with back to krishnamurti because I, I think he talks about something similar. He calls it love uh, that arises when you, and I'm going to tie it later into your notion of getting, you know, not believing your story. But but when you have no story, and I think Kirtan takes you out of your story, even though there are gods in the in the music. When I do it, I, I don't even know what I'm chanting after a while. It's just sound. But there's a cleansing that happens in the practice. And I forget all my stories and all my beliefs. And because I've, I'm story-free for a moment, there is that innocence, and out of that innocence comes love. And that's what Krishnamurti talks about, I think. So does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does make sense. I think, I think what you're talking about there might be more generic to music in general, right? That yeah. I am, I am brought into presence, you know, what I was talking about right. before. That I, And presence can take on so many different forms, right? But a lot of people, you know, who do, who've done, and, and it's beautiful that the world is doing mindfulness meditation, they think of presence as this kind of smooth and quiet place. And that is a presence, a form of presence. It can be a dimension or a feeling that is smooth and quiet and silent or nearly silent and calm and kind of people use the word blissful and those sorts of things. But presence can also be 
dancing and it can be fierce and it can appreciate the frustrations of life even while it's buzzing around. Presence can buzz. And and Kirtan presence for me tends to be real buzzy. It tends to it, the the all of the voices or the airs moving around and the feeling of freshness tends to excite my inner subtle body and and get it to buzz. Now, would Krishnamurti agree? I doubt it because I just I don't think Krishnamurti ever wants me to join anything. <laughs> I think I don't think Krishnamurti wants me to do kirtan unless I accidentally fall into it. And then he might agree with it. But if I plan to to join a kirtan, and he's gonna he's gonna warn me that I have a belief that it will do something for me. And once I believe that something will do something for me, I'm I'm screwed. That yeah, of course the that the the whole notion of once you have a belief that it's going to do something for me, it, I'm screwed. That's another belief. Yeah, I can hold that one right. temporarily. Yeah, yeah, that's you're, a, you're that's doomed my regardless. Preference. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. Annie, let, let's let's switch over to you and talk about uh, your spiritual path, which you know, um, Neil says on his website, he very puts it very simply. Her path is Jesus. Period. That's the whole thing. But. You know, anyone who reads your books, and you have this wonderful Thoughts on Faith series of books, Traveling Mercies, Plan B, Grace, Eventually, and, and I, I love Help, Thanks, Wow. I mean, the, I've read most of your books, the nonfiction books. Um, and so, you're, yeah, your path is Jesus. Did you, I, I didn't, I couldn't tell if Neil brought you to this Ramdas thing, or you brought Neil, or the two of you said, oh, let's do Ramdas, or how did you get involved with the Ramdas thing in Hawaii? Uh, what do you think about Kirtan, and then where are you on your walk with Jesus? I discovered Ramdas when in my early twenties, when I was living out in this little hippie community called Bolinas on the coast, the Pacific coast, and I just always loved it. I just grokked him, you know, that he was neurotic and funny and brilliant and. I have always loved him, and then I converted drunk to Christianity when I was 31 at this funny little church I've written so much about in the in a ghetto in this very wealthy enclave called Marin County, where I was born and raised and still live. And and so the wonderful one of the wonderful things about Ramdas was that he just loved Jesus and Christ, and 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 I, what he's talking about always is what I would call. Christ consciousness, but I don't think the nomenclature is of any value to anyone except for the MAGA people, your many MAGA listeners. But so I don't, like what I'm, well, I was going to say about maybe it was six years ago, we we were looking at something that talked about this Ramdas retreat in the spring in Maui, and a lot of people we love, especially Krishna Das because we loved his kirtan so much and we sort of crashed it and we asked the leader if we could come and we paid our own we paid for airfare but they treated us and I gave a talk on writing then we had sort of sleazed our way in and we came here in 2019 right after we got married so we had our honeymoon here and I just love it I'm, I'm very close friends with Jack Cornfield and Mirabai Star and I, I just have a real brotherhood with all of the the Das brothers, Krishna Das and Ramesh and 
Raghu Das and, and Dale Borglum, who's Deb, Deb Das, is that right? Who does the Living Dying Project in, out of Marin. And it's just a really, really natural fit. I mean, I don't have any relationship to the Hindu gods. And I love Kirtan because I just don't, you know, we, we my battle cry is that figure it out is not a good slogan. And so I don't sit there thinking about the God that we're, we're singing praise to in the mantra while we're doing the call and response with Krishnadas. I just feel the energy, you know, and the energy is just love and the energy is surrender to the to the real thing, the true thing, instead of my individual, you know, my, my personality and my neuroses and my, you know, who I present as being. I just get lost in all of that love energy. And often I don't know the words, so I try to read heel slips. If it's a really simple one, I, I know a bunch of them, but some of them are more complicated. So I try to read his lips and figure out what the words are. And otherwise, I just close my eyes and I kind of rock. You know, I rock with the rhythm and the flow. And God, just the oneness of 350 people singing praise songs. You know, we could just as easily be singing row, row, row your boat in an, in a round for 20 minutes. And I think it would have the same effect of people in surrender to the love energy. And it would carry me along and it would help me unhook from my mind, this small pinball mind I have and, and hook into something very big and, you know, measurable and bottle, bottleable and, and what I'm in it, what I'm in all of it, all of life for is that immersion and that that big thing. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you a real short thing, Neil, and I want to come back to Annie. Neil, is your background Jewish? No, no, I'm no. a Jew wannabe. I've I've always been a Jew wannabe. wannabe. I used to oh, okay. say you know, I, I was a I was a journalist for a while, and you have to travel around. And I said. I will only move to a city that has a sizable Jewish population because I can yeah. depend on the fact that there will be a broader cultural experience there. Uh, the only, my, the only my reason I walked out, my brother walked out. He converted. He married okay. a, married a Jew and converted <laughs> after well, oddly enough, his sons were bar mitzvah. He got bar mitzvah, not before. Oh, there you go. Uh, the reason I, I I asked is because Annie has an attraction for crazy wisdom Jews. I mean, first you got Jesus, then she's got Krishna Das, he's Jewish, and then you got uh, Mirabai, she's Jewish, Jack Kornfeld is, Jew is Jewish, Ram Das is Jewish. Scoop, yeah, yes. Yeah, right, right, Scoop was Jewish. I was in initiated into the Ramakrishna order of Advaita Vedanta, and my Hindu name oh. is Kali Das, so I'm one of the, the Das brothers. You're a Das brother. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a Das brother, brother yeah. yeah. I, so, I go meditate at a, the, we have this beautiful Vedanta retreat near where we live, just an old farmhouse and a really funky kind of shabby, not shabby, but, but kind of primitive. And it, you really feel like you're in a 19th century farmhouse. And, and I recommend to anybody go find an old 19th century farmhouse and a meditation there will be different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can. I mean, the the architecture itself is a powerful spiritual conduit, right? If you get the right kind of church, you get the right kind of building, get there, as opposed to the things we have now, which are these air conditioned boxes where you're breathing stale air and all that. But but yeah, yeah, you get the right the right setting, it, it can transform you. 
Uh, no question about of, that. Pictures of Ramakrishna and uh, Jesus. Jesus, yeah, and of course, because he was so ecumenical. And Vivekananda, who was Vivekananda. Yeah. Vivekananda and often, my hero. Yeah, yeah, and Masarada, and then sometimes yeah. the Buddha. Yeah. I mean, what I love yeah. about Vedanta is they, yeah. yeah, they they integrate the mother. My my experience. I mean, I'm a non-dualist. I don't like the I I I don't like the idea of having a figure that represents yep. the divine but my experience whether i like it or not my experience for for decades has been one of the divine mother so i can't deny the experience so i honor her though i don't think god is actually that i don't think i don't think god is a little blue man you know called krishna and i don't you know and i don't think god is a woman either but but i experience the divine when i have that kind of kind of personal encounter I, I do experience her as as a woman so let me let me but but annie you're still jesus is your ishwara they'd say in, in hinduism your personal avatar of the divine yes i'm i'm a, a dualist <laughs> I, i'm not a non-dualist i'm like a i have the spirits a theological sophistication literally of a kindergartner at best and I don't. I just love Jesus. I just, I just love him. I feel him. I feel him like I feel Neil here beside me. I feel there's three of us in this little room, and I just feel him. I can feel. I love Mary too. I mean, his mom, and sort of lets everybody in. And I don't have a need or an impulse inside of me to go deeper into into other realms. And, and I love Kirtan, and I don't have a relationship with Ram or Krishna, or I, I just I just love and, and think about Jesus and feel him and look at him, whatever I'm doing. And, and I just thank him. You know, you mentioned help, thanks, well. I just say help, I say help, 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 when I'm stuck, always mentally, always use, almost always a story I've made up about somebody who should be corrected. <laughs> and come crawling to me for forgiveness. And I say, help me, help me, help me. I hate this. And then I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, because my prayers are always answered. And I always just feel Jesus' very gentle hand on my on my head, just kind of rocking me a little bit and rocking me out of it. And I say, ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then when I realize I'm free again and, and I'm, I'm happier, I say, wow. The praise prayer of wow, thank you, wow. So I just keep things very simple. And I don't think it's very interesting, to be honest, but to me it is. <laughs> Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, just, just a, I guess the sidebar is interesting is a distraction. Please. You know, interesting is where we build the story, right. and it's in the simplicity that the actual divine awakening happens. You know, when it's interesting, then I'm just spinning stuff in my head, and I'm entertaining right. myself, 
but it's in that simplicity of, you know, help, thanks, wow, that wow. the encounter happens. I mean, that's just my my take on it. I want to come back to, to, to Jesus in a minute in a very odd way because of what Neil writes uh, in, about his spiritual journey. Neil, you, you, you sort of sum it up in, I don't know if they're phases or phrases or what, but you talk about not believing my story, burning down the house, and getting over my fear of death. Can you just briefly define each of those, and then I want to I want to explore the first and the and the third with you, yeah, with both of you. Yeah, not not believing the story is is kind of uh, uh, what happens when I do the work on the inner critic. So the book that I have out now is about listening to a voice in the head that seems to be telling me that I'm small and seems to belittle me a lot and seems to get in the way of things and seems to create conflict. And that voice turns out, and we can go into this later, but, but if we have time, but that voice- No, we is, will. I promise. <laughs> well, that's okay. But the voice is not me. I've, I've always thought that it was me. I had always thought it was me. And some wise people kind of brought me into the idea that maybe it isn't me and maybe I don't need that voice. And for me, I'm, I'm a destroyer of bad things. I'm not a creator of good things. So I don't do any kind of affirmation work and I don't do any kind of intention work. And I'm a little out of phase with, with, you know, how spirituality has emerged in, in this generation because I don't do those things. I really, I, I strictly watch for things in the way and assume that if I clear things out of the way, that whatever shows up is fine. And that's been my experience is that it's a process of clearing, not a process achieving. And the clearings end up kind of all being defined by a very few nasty little stories from my past. And those stories are what keep me feeling small. The story of I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable enough, or I need more friends, or I need to be a better person, or I need this, or I need that emotionally, I need to beg for love, I need to be appreciated, all of those sorts of stories of these emotional so-called needs that that even have concrete stories around them you know from childhood the, the kind of shameful events that keep I that I keep being reminded of by my little parasitic superego inner critic and I had to clear away what were a bunch of stories and ultimately I had to clear away the sense that I am a story and that was just how it worked for me. And it took a number of years of kind of relentless work to get those stories to quit appearing, not, not by denying them, by the way, and not by avoiding them or trying to fix them or replace them with better stories or anything like that, but by sticking with them and investigating them and going into my suffering. You know, we complain in order to rid ourselves of the complaint, but we don't notice 
that that works with big sufferings, not just with little sufferings. And that if I spend my time wallowing in my suffering with an investigative eye, eventually it will lighten up, usually, if not always. I don't know if it's always true, but it's certainly true enough that it provides me with enough open spaces that there came a day when I realized, oh, even while the tape is running of my habitually feeling threatened by this imaginary emotional danger, there, there emerged an access to my authentic self who is always compassionate with me and always interested in a kind of disinterested way in what's going on that I discovered, oh, even while the story was running, part of me didn't even believe the story anymore. And it was at that point when I realized that's most of the work. As long as I don't believe the story in the end, who cares whether it's still running, whether I still have work to do to kind of investigate it more so that it all its last traces will go away. Who cares? I'm I am I know even while the story is running that it's not me and that it's just a story. And so that's the, you know, not believing my story period. And the second period was soon after that a lot of the kind of stuff in my life just started to crumble away. And I call it my burning down the house because all of a sudden there's a there's a, a realization somehow. And it's not so much a conscious realization. It wasn't really conscious to me that I was going to or that all of a sudden I found myself in the midst of burning down the house, which was, you know, I had built up all of these layers of interests and acquisitions and stuff, you know, some of it was just material stuff and things that were kind of there to prop up my various identities and my shiny surfaces in the world. And all of a sudden, they, I just started to, to remove them and, and drop them out of my life. And my life became much more simple in concrete terms as well as in metaphoric terms. And that's my burning down the house period. And, and then I realized that a guy who had been very, very important to me died in, around then. And, and this is probably about 10 or 12 years ago. And I just couldn't stop grieving. And I realized, well, that's weird, right? Why am I, why do I continue to grieve this way for this person who led a very long, beautiful life? And, and I realized I needed to know more about death. And I happened, you know, how these serendipitous things happen. I was in a, in a reading group and we were reading, a, I read this essay by the French essayist Montaigne and he basically said to get rid of the fear of death, spend your time around dying people and around corpses. I mean, he really suggested you get a mortuaries and he suggested that you, in those days you could go to a battlefield after a, after a battle and see the corpses lying on the ground. And so I joined hospice and I did. And then my dad started to die and my dog started to die. And I had all these nice lessons of being around death and, and examining death and it turned out to be just beautiful and a great 
a great time doing all of those things. And, and I discovered that death isn't, if you're immersed in it with somebody, it's not necessarily a sorrowful place. It's a, it's a place of just extreme eye-opening experiences and that the whole process of letting go particularly if you you know lived long enough that you're in old age and you have to let go of your your legs and your eyes and your ears and all these things that you thought you needed and so many people die well through hospice nowadays and they get to appreciate wow even without being able to leave my bed, even without being able to read a book, even without being able to hear my grandchildren talk to me, I'm I'm still actively alive in this crazy, wonderful world. And and being around that, and being around people who are having terrible deaths, it's it's also fascinating. And and realizing it's not my job to improve somebody's death, it's my job. To keep my eyes open and to be aware that this too will happen to me and I might die in dementia and I might die in terrible, terrible fear. There's a great story that Adyashanti uh, tells of him going to a guru that at, at some point in his life and, and saying, you know, are you scared of death? And the guru is saying, well, no, I, you know, in a fundamental way I'm not, but I reserve the right to be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm wondering, Annie, this is, I guess, for you. I mean, you said you're you're sort of an, a kindergarten Christian, if I could put it that way, but I, I see if I can, we, we can talk a little bit, uh, I don't know, ninth grade maybe. Uh, I'm listening to Neil, and I'm wondering if the Christian story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so for me, this isn't history, and that might certainly be very different for you. But for me, it's it's allegory, it's it's a spiritual metaphor. But I'm listening to to, to what Neil is saying. And the the story of the crucifixion is in a, is in a sense, a, a way of being around death. You know, the Sufis have a saying, die before you die. And participating in the crucifixion story in one way or another is a way to practice dying before you die. This, this is what I have in mind. So in the Gospel according to Mark, which is the original Gospel, the first Gospel written, Jesus only says one thing on the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. And in my mind, after listening to Neil, it, it, it's his way of not believing his story. His story was, I'm hanging on the cross and God is going to save me. You know, because he says, Ailey, my God, the God of my story. You know, or in 12 step, we talk about the God of my understanding. Well, the God of my understanding is just that, the God of my understanding. It's not the reality itself. So Jesus is on the cross and he says, my story has forsaken me. And that's a necessary thing that has to happen, I think, to everybody if we're going to get resurrected into, the, into reality. And so my reading of the gospel is that Jesus is paradigmatic. He's each of us. And he says, follow me. And where's, where does he go? He goes to the cross, but then he goes to the resurrection. I think my reading of Jesus says, if you can do what he did, 
be crucified on your own story, die to your own story, then the gift is the gift of your own resurrection, not into another story, but into, into reality itself, into presence itself, into the truth that will set you free. Not the truth that Jesus is the Christ, but the truth that can't be named, you know, the Tao that, that can't be named, that Lao Tzu talks about. I, I'm wondering if this just sounds like gobbledygook to you, or if Neil is a prophet. Neither. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Jesus on the cross really, really hated it. You know, I think it was excruciating and terrifying for him and that that was the depth of his love for us that i think he came here he came here to die on the cross i mean the system of life is life death new life over and over again life death new life that's what easter is about and the you know it's said it's been said that for christians we're we're good friday people we're easter people in a Good Friday world. And I think he, Jesus was really experiencing Good Friday. It was Good Friday, and, it, and but he also was the truth. He was the truth of Christ, the resurrected Christ. And he was also, he came here as a man, as a human man, immersed in our suffering and understanding the, really the nightmares of human life, the, the terrors and the, the cruelty and the the insanity of the way people treat each other and the, the very self-destructively cruel way people treat each other. And he said, okay, I'm in, and did it. And so I do believe he died and was risen on the third day and rose on the third day because it just has the ring of truth to me. That's all I can say is that I do believe that he he brought Lazarus back from the dead. Now, it doesn't mean that Lazarus doesn't die again a few years later or whatever, but that I just believe that in the natural world that doesn't happen, that can't happen. I'm a, I absolutely 100% believe in science and biology and whatnot, but in the supernatural world, in the ethereal world, we're like two, two or three rings out from the bullseye of, of perception that we understand that that we can't we don't die we can't die we seem to have died and that we have transformed into a, a different it's like a different car you know like here we're in these neil and i laugh a lot about these broken down old, old cars that carry our souls and beings around you know like so many systems have stopped working effectively but i think it's it's I just heard someone say that they told their child that the experience of death is like falling asleep on the cold living room floor and waking up in your own bed. And I think that's really rings true to me. All I can say is that I'm not going to know this side of the grave what, what truth is. Did Jesus really die and resurrect? And that's why I love the story of Job so much because all of Job's friends are pressing him to figure it out. Figure it out is not a good slogan. And and God finally says to, to Job, I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand. So what's the point? You know, the, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so I really don't need to understand much, but 
the story really rings true to me, and I, I live from that truth of the nativity, of the, the three years of ministry, of the miracles, of the restoring sight to the blind. Of It just doesn't bother me. I just think that a couple of rings out from the bullseye of our intellectual understanding, a lot of very interesting stuff is happening. Mm. I, I also love the book of Job, and I like the way it, it actually ends in the Hebrew, not so much in the English translations, where Job finds comfort in not knowing. Yeah, and the, exactly. In the yeah. Stephen Mitchell translation, it's wow. one of the few that actually does justice to the Hebrew. Let, let me let me switch gears and and take a look at this notion of the inner critic. I mean, the the whole book is about you know the whole book Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic is about the inner critic. Neil, you've talked about it already. I, I want to take a look at it in the time we have left. You do you look at the inner critic as the inner critic, which makes total sense. I love the fact that you you name yours the gremlin. Annie calls hers the governess. I've been aware of mine for a long time. I call mine Archie, because that's I hear my dad's voice, and that was my dad's name. Um, you know, when I was reading your book, it reminded me a lot of Roberto Asagioli's uh, Piero Fiorucci's book, what we may be, where he talks about naming the inner critic and a bunch of other sub-personalities. And, and that's by naming them, you get to work with them. And the inner critic, and, and you make this clear, is a necessary part of who we are, but one that can be a servant, not a master. Fair, fair enough? It was necessary. Was. I, I actually don't believe it's necessary after you're 17 years old. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I think your I think your conscience is already built into your sophisticated strategies of moving through a civilization, and you don't actually need a reminder, an extra voice reminding you. You, you so the superego merges at a time when you are being given the freedom to spend time outside of your parents' watch and you could make fateful decisions in that crossing streets without looking is the is the you know usual example and so you have a parental voice reminding you to look both ways before you cross before you cross and if you and if you don't pay attention to it and there's a screeching brake breaks and you get a chill through your spine as a 6 year old that you didn't do it, it punishes you. And it punishes you the same way all the time. A parent, an absent parent's frown. That's all that's the only punishment that it inflicts. And it's the only one it needs or the only one it knows. And that's very important for the child at the advent of moving at six years old, seven years old, the advent of moving from into adult society and being able to mature yourself into being able to self-regulate without your your circumstances, without having an adult, another adult or an adult hovering around you. But then it gets it just likes the job of scolding you and likes the job of making you feel small. And at seventeen, it's still treating you like a six-year-old. And if you don't watch it at 50, 
you're being treated like a six-year-old and you have this poor wounded six-year-old inside you resenting everything around you because you think you are that. You think you're this this dangerous or helpless or hopeless little little creature. And that part's unnecessary, right? That part, you, you know, you, you, you don't need... I'm perfectly good at crossing streets on my own, thank you. You know, I don't need somebody constantly reminding me that I could fail. Do you think people who don't I don't know if the word is outgrow or don't, don't, let's just use it. The people who don't outgrow the inner critic as they get older project it onto other people? They definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's our primary, it's our curator of all conflict. And projection involves separating, right? And so you feel that you're separated from others. And this is what tells you you're separated from others. This is what tells you you're only valuable for your external appearance and how you relate to others in a civilized way and you better be helping people and you better be serving people and otherwise you're you're a predator of some sort and that's all projection is all conflict is curated by this little very very simple-minded and repetitive voice in my head and it's not me. You know, that's what right. that's what's surprising is when I when I came into this understanding, I was just shocked that no one had told me that that wasn't me, that that I that I didn't need what people call a personal conscience. I mean, you think about it, personal conscience doesn't make any sense, right? A conscience is an ethical system. And it can't be personal. It has to be within your tribe universal in some way. And yet we think we have to carry around our own personal voice of that conscience or somehow we're bad seeds or, or you know, we have original sin if we're Augustine. And, and, and Freud thought we were bad seeds and that it was at war with, I mean, Freud's brilliant. But he really did think that the superego was necessary to offset predatory homicidal instincts. And I just think that's nonsense. I think we are, as adults, by the time we're 17, almost all of us, and you have to, you have to ignore the sociopaths anyway, because their conscience doesn't work for them anyway, so it's of no benefit to them either. You, d you just don't need to carry around an extra voice of the conscience. You, you have a perfectly good conscience developed oh, within okay. your sophisticated self. Putting aside the sociopath or the psychopath, my sense is, and I'm just getting your take on it, my sense is, is that there are structures in the society, whether they're political or religious, maybe educational, but certainly political and religious, that seek to impose the inner critic. They don't want you to be without an inner critic. Absolutely. Um, I mean, this this also goes back to Krishnamurti, I think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case that the that the inner critic is is the nightly news. It's it's everything that tells you you're only important in the world insofar as you are operating in the justice system of the world, the right, wrong, good, bad part of the world, and 
and I operate in that world, and it's necessary, and I love that world, right? And I watch MSNBC most nights, and but this is where, for me, the 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 one of the two or three big statements of Jesus is, you know, when he says, "Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's; don't render under Caesar that which is not Caesar. Render render under God that that which is God." Now. So when he says it, he's winning a rabbinical contest, and it's brilliant, right? And you know, we won't go into the whole story, but he has to say it in the positive: render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's; render unto God that which is God. What he really meant, if he if he hadn't been pulled into this rabbinical contest, was people don't render unto Caesar that which isn't Caesar's, which is. 80% of my day, 80% of my day, or 90%, or 10%, it doesn't matter which percent, there is a huge portion of my day when I am not, I don't have to operate within the justice system. And during that part of the day, I don't have to have enemies, I don't have to have right and wrong, good and bad, because my compassion, my love, and my empathy in the sense of I am that empathy. That's real empathy is I am you, not I like you or I feel love for you. It is I am you. That's where it's different from compassion. Compassion is the love that arises in the presence of suffering. The suffering is defining the compassion in a way or pulling it out of the ether for me. Empathy is I am you. I'm not separated. I am, I can be a rock, I suppose. I mean, I wouldn't bother every most of the time, but I can feel a kinship with everything. And, and, and I get to live in that world. I'm allowed to live in that world. And, and Jesus was basically saying, go live in that world too. You know, don't just be in the justice world. Don't just be in the world where you think it's all about, you know, being a good person. You're already that. And you have time during the day to be that and to have no enemies and to not pay attention for a little while to climate change and not pay attention and notice. I mean, my God, what kind of God would create us to, to, to just be scared? Wouldn't, didn't God create us because God was vain and wanted to be able to see the world that he had created and be fascinated by that world you know i'm the i i want the god of the first story in, in genesis and part of the day i spend in the god of the second story of genesis and they're they're they they don't mix justice and empathy cannot mix because empathy says i'm the same as everybody and justice says mm, there's a hierarchy here. Annie, any last thoughts on that? No, I just want to make a pitch, though, for the the work we're talking about here in, in Better Days, that Neil started doing that work with me on about our second date. <laughs> because, you know, you're a writer, and you, you have that voice just coming out of the, the right-hand speaker that just says, oh, you can't say that, or, oh, you've already said that, talking about beating a dead horse, or you start to write something, and 
you know, back in the day, you're worried that Michiko Kakatani is going to think it's stupid and it's kind of makes you freeze up and stuff. And I just started doing the work of discovering this voice that wasn't me that had kept me alive. You know, all of Neil's clients, when they are meeting and meeting their inner critic and, and asking him or her to maybe go wait in the lib- wait in the library and read for a while, but let them alone, let them get to work, let each person get to back to their own lives. He has some thank the inner critic for having kept them alive. And people just without exception weep because they do know that this voice that socialized them, kept them from being run over, kept them from drowning, and they don't need it anymore. And this voice will never be gone. It'll be in the library as needed. And in the meantime, we're gonna we're gonna try to listen to the voice of our own heart and our own spiritual nature and our own creative nature and our own beingness, you know. And it was a game changer. So, and I, you are just great, Rabbi Rami. I you are so brilliant and also so sweet and and fun. I just love talking to you every time. So here's Neil again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Annie. Oh, I don't want to talk to you, Neil, after that. No, we have to stop. Luckily, we've run out of time, so I don't have to you know, lose that as the final word. <laughs> Thank you, you know, one, one thing that I One thing that I like about this podcast is it never leaks into that idea that somehow you got to get rid of your head center. You got to think less in order to be more. And I love my head center, right? <laughs> I, I love my body center. I love my heart center. And I love my head center. And my head center is my play toy. You know, it gets to have the fun of making puzzles and solving the puzzles and investigating and finding truth. And it helps me understand where love is and how love works. And love helps me understand the truth. And they work hand in hand. And uh, I, I'm, I think that thinking about these things and distinguishing concepts and distinguishing realities and dimensions and testing things and all of those things that we learn as nice, you know, scientific method people are applicable in the spiritual realm just and are just as useful. And I love talking to people who share that. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Our guests today, Neil Allen and Annie Lamott, are two amazing writers and spiritual teachers. Annie is the author of numerous books, both fiction and nonfiction. Her new book, Somehow, Thoughts on Love, is due out in April. Neil is the author of Shapes of Truth, Discover God Inside of You. An excerpt from his new book, Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic, appears in the November-December 2023 issue of Spirituality Health magazine. It's the article with the excerpt is entitled Enjoy Being Ordinary. Steve Kiesling interviews Annie in the same issue of the magazine in a piece called The Time to Write, a Masterclass from Annie Lamott. You can learn more about Neil's work at his website, shapesoftruth.com, and follow Annie on Instagram at Annie Lamont. 
Annie and Neil, thank you both for joining us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to the Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everybody at Spirituality and Health magazine, we thank you for your support. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.